this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Let's pray. O Lord, thank you for your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, we ask that you would grant us your Holy Spirit that we may understand, believe, and obey that which you have said. In Jesus' name, amen. What does a mighty man of God look like? When you think of those heroes of the faith, what comes to mind? Sometimes you might think of someone with a halo around their head. Someone that they just seem... You remember that show, um, was it Touched by an Angel? Where um, you knew that somebody was an angel because there was a spotlight above their head. And sometimes we, when we read about these, these great heroes of the faith, we think of that kind of image, that other flesh. They're so different. They're so holy. They must just have the radiance of God coming off of them like a spotlight. Are they allowed to doubt? Are such heroes of the faith allowed to doubt themselves? Are they allowed to make mistakes? Do they, do they just sort of barrel through life, just no doubt, no f- false thoughts, just straight on inspiring everyone as they go? Do they ever experience setbacks? Now, surely, if we're talking about heroes of the scriptures, Moses has got to be in the top five. He is... The, the, the godly man of godly men. He is the prophet of prophets. He is the leader of leaders, the deliverer of deliverers. He is a big deal. And yet, as we actually look at the life of Moses, we see a man that has a lot of self-doubt. We see a man who has a lot of reluctance. We see a man who feels like a failure at times, a man who feels discouraged at times. He was an ordinary man. He had ordinary human parents. He had fears. He had insecurities. He sometimes failed. At least in his mind, he failed. So what is it that sets Moses apart? Only this. God called him to a great task, and he believed God. 
and he acted in obedience. Sometimes against his will, but he did it. God had to convince him. God had to assure him that he would be with him every step of the way. The point is that Moses served a mighty God. And this mighty God loves to use very ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. When God looks at the human race, he's not looking for the ones that are already amazing. He calls ordinary people and does amazing things through them. Let's uh, look for a moment at who this Moses and Aaron were. Moses and Aaron were God's chosen vessels to deliver Israel from slavery and bring them to the promised land of Canaan. This is an amazing thing that God would use. Ordinary men, Moses and Aaron, were very ordinary. This was a great and high calling, tremendous responsibility. Remember, the Israelites at this time had never been a real nation people group. They were an ethnic minority in Egypt, a land that they were not from, a land that even when they got there, when their brother Joseph was a highly respected officer under Pharaoh, even when they got there, their profession was despised. They were shepherds, and the Egyptians didn't want anything to do with them. They were always a people apart. And then once that Pharaoh that loved Joseph died and was gone, another Pharaoh came along to oppress them, and he feared them because they were not Egyptian. And so he subjected them to hard labor. And when even under slavery they multiplied, he decided to take an even harder stance and not only increase their workload, but also enact genocidal policies of killing all the baby boys and throwing them into Nile. And of course, you know that Moses was one of these that should have been killed by the order of Pharaoh, but was preserved by the love of his mother and the providence of God. This was a tremendous responsibility to lead this people that had long been oppressed out of slavery and into the promised land. And we're not talking about some sort of underground railroad, one-by-one escaping situation. We're talking about the entire group marching out together. One would have to think such a task is impossible. Pharaoh was the most powerful monarch in the world at the time. He ruled Egypt, powerful kingdom. His rule was absolute. He had no parliament. He had no senate to contend with. What he said was law. And he had an iron fist when it came to Israel. How in the world could such a task be accomplished? Now, if you were to... Be in charge of this sort of operation. Perhaps you would want to find someone who is a gifted military genius to maybe enact guerrilla warfare, to train the slaves in secret and then arm them in secret and then all at once, you know, maybe burn some strategic locations and and take hold of strategic strong points and lead out that way. That's not what God does. Perhaps you would want a gifted orator or a lawyer to really scour the laws of Egypt to try to figure out a a way to, to get them out by legal means and inspire them that way. That's not what God does. To accomplish such a great and high task, we would be tempted to pick the extraordinary, the brightest, the best, the most gifted. This is not what God does. God chose two very ordinary brothers with very little to distinguish them from anyone else. Why? 
Why doesn't God choose better candidates? That's what Moses would like to know. If you remember at the burning bush, Moses essentially said, uh, I think you got the wrong guy. I think you want somebody else. Please don't send me. And yet, he is the one that God chose. The genealogy of Moses and Aaron is given in Exodus 6, uh, 14 through 24. And we'll read that uh, just briefly here. These are the heads of the father's houses, the sons of Reuben, that's the firstborn of Israel, uh, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, secondborn, Jamuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, Shul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, thirdborn, according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, Merari, the son, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. So notice, we're not given the entire genealogy of all the sons of Israel. We're only given the first three, stopping with Levi, because Levi is the ancestor of Moses and Aaron. They're Levites. And the point of giving the first two, Reuben and uh, Simeon, even though that line isn't followed beyond the second generation there, is to show Levi is third born. He's not first born. He's not a leader among his brothers. He is just one of the pack. In fact, if you remember from our study of Genesis, Levi was not exactly the most level-headed godly of the brothers. Levi and Simeon were the two brothers who spear-pointed a genocidal attack, most uh, despicable act by using circumcision as a way to get revenge for their sister's purity. When they were camping near the town of Shechem, the prince of that land uh, raped their sister and so they uh, made up this plan, Simeon and Levi did, to have all of the men of the city be circumcised. And then while they were in pain, they came in and slaughtered the whole town. That's the Levi we're talking about. Strong sense of justice, yes. Um, good neighbor, probably not. A uh, little, little dangerous, um, a lot dangerous. This Levi is who we're talking about. The sons of Gershon, Libni, Shimei, by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, Uziel. The years of the life of Kohath being 133. Now, Amram is who we're looking at. That's uh, Moses and Aaron's father. So they're of the, tri the clan of Kohath, tribe of Levi, clan of Kohath. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jacobed, his father's sister, his aunt. And she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. Significant that she is his aunt, because in Leviticus 18.12, we're actually specifically told that is an unlawful union. Don't do it. In other words, a son of such a union would be considered a bastard, illegitimate, not good stock, compromised line. 
You get the point here? Now, this union was not unlawful before uh, Leviticus, but I always wondered how awkward it might have been for Moses and Aaron, who are the ones who are giving the law to the people, to say, um, Mom and Dad uh, were wrong. Uh, that was an illegitimate union. We should not even exist by the law that we are giving right now. Now, perhaps they say this out of personal experience, um, but they are in this position of actually being the sons of their aunt. I'm trying to think of the... So they're their own cousin. I guess that's the, that's the thing, right? Yeah, so they're brother cousins. Um, little, little weird, a little awkward. Uh, notice the line doesn't stop there, though. Um, it continues on after Moses and Aaron. The sons of Izhar, Korah, uh, Nepheg, and Zikri. Korah will later be significant because Korah brought about a rebellion against Moses and Aaron when he decided that he was also a Levite, he's their cousin, I should be the leader. And Korah's rebellion in, in Numbers is recorded as being uh, a difficult time that results in the earth swallowing them whole. So this is emphasizing their relatives are a little divided. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, uh, Eliphaz, Zithri, Aaron took as his wife Elsheba, the daughter of Amenadab and the sister of Nershon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Isar, Aser, Elkinah, and Abashitha, or whatever. <laughs> I don't know how to say that one. Um, these are the clans of the Korites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. Phineas, you'll learn later, um, was a lot like his uh, ancestor Levi. Phineas is one that uh, when he saw, um, so there was a, 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 an area around the tabernacle that was supposed to be holy to the Lord. And um, he found two, um, uh, two, Le two, I don't know if they're Levites, two Israelites that were desecrating that area by uh, laying together. And so he took a spear and pinned both of them to the ground. And God commended it. as that was, a, that was a good job. He was zealous for the Lord's holiness. Interesting family line we, we have here. Um, in fact, when you think of a priest, you probably think of a man of peace, right? A guy who is very, like, pacifist, would never hurt somebody. The, the Levitical priests don't really fit that model. They're the ones who um, you should be scared if they see you doing something that they think is blasphemous because they're liable to just pull out a spear and pin you to the wall. Um, it's not unusual for their line. So the, the, the genealogy here on first glance might seem rather dry, but if you know who the people are that they're talking about later on, you'll, you'll, you'll be struck by what sort of stock Moses and Aaron really come from. 
This tells us that the priestly line of Aaron, which is one of the functions of this passage to make clear uh, the priestly line of Aaron. Aaron would be the first high priest, and then uh, the high priesthood was to go um, through his line. But it tells us that his line was not chosen because of their innate righteousness. They were made holy by their calling, but they were not called because they were holy. God's sovereign choice is what purified them. If God required absolute purity in their lineage, Aaron's line would have been eliminated. God chose ordinary men to deliver Israel in order that the glory would all be God's. So that when we look at the family line, we're struck, this Aaron and this Moses. If you wondered why does it repeat that like that, it's because it's making the point. These are ordinary guys. This Moses, this Aaron, of this stock that's not particularly noteworthy for its purity or its holiness. It is these men that God chooses to lead his people. And we're told uh, what God tells them. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. Another way to translate that word is by their armies or by their battalions. In other words, they're not sneaking away. They're marching out as, a, as an army, as an organized group. They are to exit the land of their slavery, out of the land of Egypt. This is a powerful picture that not only will they be released, they will be doing it in broad daylight. They will be doing it with no subtlety at all. God would so impress Pharaoh and overcome Pharaoh's power that Pharaoh would drive them out, would say, please leave, I can't take it anymore. This was a seemingly impossible task that God was calling Moses and Aaron to. But God is more than capable of doing what, from our perspective, seems impossible. And when this happens, God gets all the credit. We cannot look at the lives of Moses and Aaron and conclude that they were just brilliant tacticians and that's why they were able to do what they did. No, we have to come to the conclusion that God was working all through these events. Moses and Aaron were very ordinary men called to serve a great and powerful God. This should be a comfort to all of us who know that we are ordinary people that know that we are flawed people, that sometimes get discouraged, that sometimes get confused, that sometimes fail. God loves to use people that are ordinary and flawed so that he gets the glory. Moses and Aaron were sent on an extraordinary mission, though. So we see that uh, Moses' reluctance to be used by God in this extraordinary way was something that pervaded his calling. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Moses cares about the people of Israel. He does. It's not because he doesn't care about the mission that he says, that, he, that he's reluctant. 
it's because he doubted himself. Moses did not think that he was capable of this mission that God was calling him on. God, I, I don't speak well. I'm un, uncircumcised lips. That's a metaphor for being a, a poor speaker. It's not a technical reality, if you understand. Um, I'm sure his lips were uncircumcised, but you understand the point. is not so much the technical aspects as he's, he, does, he doesn't speak well, and he knows that the, the mission that God is sending him on is tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. And Moses goes, I am a bad public speaker, which isn't unusual. Most people, uh, public speaking is one of their greatest fears, um, sometimes listed over death, which is one of my favorite statistics because um, that's what I do. And it, uh, it makes me wonder, would you rather be dead than do what I'm doing right now? Maybe. It's kind of fun, though. But God calls even a, a man like Moses who really wants nothing to do with public speaking. And it's a familiar complaint that he has because it's exactly what he says back in verse 12 of chapter 6. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Again, you have this same complaint from him. I am not a good speaker. No one's going to listen to me, Lord. The Israelites have already not listened to me. How is Pharaoh, who's already against me, going to listen? But again, he is missing the point. The point is not that God was calling him because he was so gifted. God was calling him specifically because he's not gifted and so that God would get all the glory. Moses could only find success by relying on God's abilities because his were simply not up to the task. He couldn't do it. When he said, I'm a poor speaker, he was right. But God knew that and God would work through that weakness. God's purpose was to free Israel from slavery in Egypt and bring them to a land of their own that had been promised to their ancestors. This is a tremendous calling, not just go free to do whatever you want. It's go out of Egypt to a land of your own, a land of blessing, a land of promise. And way back in Genesis chapter 15, to Abraham, God had made this promise. And uh, Genesis 15, 13 through 16, God says this to Abraham. Then Yahweh said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This was hundreds of years before Moses was ever born that God made this promise to Abraham. This is prophecy that God would certainly bring about. So not only was the slavery in, in Egypt foretold, they will be sojourners, they'll not belong 
in a land, and they will be servants there and afflicted for 400 years. That is a perfect description of the current circumstances that Moses was under. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That is a perfect description of the Exodus events that were happening in Moses' life. I don't know if Moses fully understood what the prophecy to Moses or to, to Aaron, nope, Abraham was about. I don't know if he was thinking about that prophecy as God was calling him, but he surely knew about it later as God would bring judgment on Egypt for their affliction of Israel. And they shall come back here. He's in the land of Canaan, at Abraham is, in the fourth generation, for the iniquities of the Amorites is not yet complete. A lot going on there. Fascinating prophecy here. A couple things that I'd, I'd like to highlight. First is that their captivity was not a, um, a roadblock to God. God wasn't surprised that Israel was being afflicted in, in Egypt. God knew that this was going to happen. It was part of the plan. And uh, again, that they would not stay there, but they would come out of there with great possessions and enter into the land of promise. A land that by this point, none of them had lived in because they'd been in Egypt for so long. And notice this fourth generation in the captivity. And compare that to the um, genealogy that we just looked at. Generation one is uh, Levi, um, the first generation to experience slavery in Egypt were Levi's sons, rather. So we have uh, Levi's sons is first generation. Second generation of um, the uh, slavery experience was uh, uh, the second generation of Moses and it was Aaron and Moses' father, Amram. Third generation was Moses and Aaron. Fourth generation would be Aaron's son, Eleazar. Eleazar is the high priest when Joshua conquers Canaan. So 400 years seems like you should have more than four generations, but they're all long livers and late fathers. Um, Levi lives till 137, and his sons all have this pattern of not having children until they're older, and so we have an exact fulfillment, at least according to the uh, genealogies that we have here, of God fulfilling exactly what he had said to bring them back in the fourth generation. Pretty amazing stuff. These generations were very long, but God had a purpose in them all along. One of the functions, notice, of the taking of Canaan is this interesting phrase here. They shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What a fascinating phrase. The Amorites were the people group that were living in Canaan, and their iniquity was not yet complete. The word complete could be understood as a, like a, if you imagine a bottle, and um, it, the bottle is the iniquities. When it's full, it's time for judgment. It's time to pour out the wrath of God. And that bottle has not yet filled up. Their sins had not yet reached that critical mass where God would judge them. And so we can see that the conquest of Canaan could be viewed from two perspectives. The first perspective is blessing and covenant promise fulfillment for Israel. But the second way to look at it 
The second function that you could look at is that it was judgment day for the iniquity of the inhabitants of Canaan. Fascinating to think about that aspect, that it, for, for the one group, it's blessing, for the other group, it's judgment day. It's actually the exact same dynamic of the Exodus, where as the Israelites are coming out of Egypt, for them, it's blessing, it's promise fulfillment. For the Egyptians, it's judgment day. It is a time to answer for their sins. It's actually the exact same dynamic that we can look at with the second coming of Christ. For believers, it's blessing, it's promise fulfillment. For the enemies of God, it is judgment day. The Lord would use Moses as his speaker, as his representative. So we have um, in, in 7.1 here, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. There are very few places in Scripture where people are compared to an Elohim, a God. This is one of them. But we have to understand in what capacity is he functioning as a mouthpiece to Pharaoh. Um, Only in the speaking function. At no point should Moses get a God complex and think that he is the one that's really running things. It's only that God is speaking to Moses. Moses would then speak to Aaron. Aaron would speak to Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh was the recipient of the message. Aaron was functioning as prophet. Moses was functioning as God. Normally the way that it works is that the prophet is the mouthpiece for God. And we're just adding another person here to make up for Moses' concern about his speaking abilities. And so Aaron is given to fulfill that role, to fill those gaps in Moses. The message, though, is the same. That's important to recognize that the message is still the same. Say all that God gives you to say. You're not making up the message. You're only conveying the message that God gives. And Pharaoh will receive that message poorly. God says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. God knew exactly what was going to happen, and God's mighty plan even took into account the hardness of heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh would not listen, but God knew that. God had told Moses not only what he was supposed to do, but also what Pharaoh's response was going to be and what it was going to take to change his mind. It wouldn't take just one one sign of wonder. It would take many until God lays his hand on Egypt in this final judgment way. The Lord had a plan for Israel and for Egypt, in other words. God was going to show who he really is. He's going to flex a bit to show how powerful he is to the strongest kingdom on earth. God would show his powerful hand in such unmistakable ways as to remove any doubt whatsoever as to who had brought Israel out of Egypt. And so God says that Egypt, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And previously, 
God had said that Israel would know that he is the Lord. What does that mean? It's more than just knowing his name. It's knowing what he's like. It's knowing who they're dealing with. It's knowing that he is powerful, that he is someone to fear, to respect, to obey. This was important for both Israel, God's covenant people, and Egypt, that they would know the Lord. Both would learn that God means business. God would bring great acts of judgment against Egypt to show his power. And Pharaoh had said that he did not know Yahweh. Remember when Moses and Aaron initially came to him, and they said back in, this is in in chapter 5, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But in 5.2, Pharaoh responds, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. And they would come to know God in a way that would make them shake. God would show who he is through his acts of judgment. So again, where we have interesting parallels is in uh, Philippians 2, where we're told that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, but not in a saving way. Some will come to know that through his acts of judgment, as Pharaoh did. Pharaoh did not know the Lord in a saving way, but he did know his power and judgment. And God bringing Israel out was both an act of judgment against Egypt's cruelty and an act of mercy and love toward Israel. Moses and all Israel were to trust in God to bring about what he had said that he would do. Sit back, watch as God performs what he does. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. That is exactly the response that God wanted. Just do what I tell you to do. Lord, I'm not a good speaker. I know. Just go. Just do it. Lord, I really don't want to go. I know. Just go. Just do what I tell you to do. Leave the results up to the Lord. Moses was 80 years old. Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. That is not a young age. Uh, By any real standpoint, you would go, those guys are way too old to start this great mission from God here. But God knew who he was choosing. The power would not come from them, it would come from the Lord himself. The people of Israel, Moses and Aaron included, would have to be patient and wait on God's perfect timing. We know that if Moses had his desires met, it would go easy. He would go to Pharaoh and say, let him go, and Pharaoh would go, okay, see you later. Here's a nice severance package for your faithful service. That's not how it went, though. Moses would have to wait on the Lord's perfect timing and trust his plan. Both Israel and Egypt would witness God's mighty acts. This would be a very humbling experience. It would be a reminder of how powerless they really were before such a powerful God. If we are to have a relationship with God, we should want to know who God really is. And we know who he really is through what he has done and said in his word, the Bible. I say this because sometimes people will say something like this. Um, 
I think you should just love the Lord and, and, and don't, you know, don't get so involved with, you know, the, the complexities of the Bible and the theology. And, you know, just can't you, can't, you, can't you just love him? I think you should love him, but how, how am I supposed to love someone that I don't know? Um, can, can you imagine how strange it would be to have someone who says, um, yes, I, I love this woman. Um, I don't want to talk to her or, or see her or um, read anything that she wrote or anything, but I do love her. I find that when I spend time with her, I love her less, though. And she confuses me when she talks to me, so I'm just going to keep my love for her unstained. I would have to say, you don't love her, you don't know her, you love an idea of her that you prefer to her, and... um, you need to wake up to your delusions about who she actually is. It's no good making up a God that we prefer that is easier to swallow if this God isn't real. He can't do any good. What's the use of trading a true God who challenges us for a false God who we're very comfortable with but can't do anything for us? What we find when we actually look at the word of God the revelation of God so that we know who, who, who are we talking about when you say that you love God? What, what is it that you love? Why do you love him? What you actually find is that God is powerful, that God is very patient and wise, full of grace and mercy and love. God is also full of justice and wrath. And the highest goal of God is not our ease, is not our preference, is not to make us less impatient. No, God's highest goal is his own glory. The Westminster Confession of Faith in the Shorter Catechism, the first question is gold, and everyone should know it. Let's see how you do. What is the chief end of man? That's right. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Because that's what we're made for. He is the creator. We are the creature. God's ultimate goal is not us. It's his own glory. What is God's glory, though? God's glory is shown when his attributes are known. When he shows who he is, that's his glory. And that's the highest goal, is to make himself known. The exodus was a tremendous blessing to Israel, but not the main goal. The main goal was to show who Yahweh really was in his judgment and in his mercy. God was calling Moses to be a part of this redemption story, but the main goal was not the glorification of Moses. The main goal was to glorify God, to make him known. Moses was swept up in this grand design of redemption. There were many things that had come before Moses was ever born. Many things that would set up what God was doing here in the Exodus. Many prophecies, many covenant promises. Moses is only one step in that process. And after Moses, there were many other things that would happen and that the Exodus itself would set up. You don't understand the conquest of Canaan until you understand the Exodus, but you don't understand the uh, monarchy until you understand the uh, 
conquest of Canaan, but you don't understand the long exile until you understand what happened in the monarchy, and you don't understand the uh, coming back and the restoration to the land unless you've understood the exile. And you don't understand the work of Christ until you understand all of these things that point forward to Christ. All these people, all these characters, all these stories are playing into this one big story, this one grand design, this beautiful tapestry that each life is a, is a thread in that beautiful picture that God is making. Even this great redemptive act that God was bringing about for Israel by bringing them out of uh, Egypt was not the end of the story. It was only one step in that story. Generation after generation, God is unfolding his great plan of redemption. We may not realize our place in this grand design. I don't think any of us really fully understand the impact that other people have had on our lives or the impact that we have on other people's lives. Each one of us, though, is called to do exactly what Moses and Aaron did here. Just do what the Lord commands you to do. Be faithful where God has put you. Trust him with the rest. There's this thought that is so pernicious that in order to have a life that matters, that you have to be famous, that you have to do something great to get into the annals of history. From a worldly perspective, perhaps that's how you gain immortality. That's how you gain eternal life, to have people know your name around the world, whether that's an infamy or not. But that is not at all the calling that we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a calling to be faithful where God has put us, whether that is in a prominent role or a role that nobody knows your name. Can you be faithful where God has put you, trusting that the grand design, that big picture, is being worked out by the Lord? We have to understand that God's story doesn't have us at the center it's not a, we, we should never have a man-centered theology as if the world revolves around us. Now, to be sure, we are tremendous benefactors of what Christ has done. God loved you, person with a face. He knew your sins, and he called believers to himself long before they were born. But the main goal isn't us. It's his glory. We are swept up and this grand story that God himself is writing in order to make himself known, not just to Egypt, not just to any people group, but to the entire world. Christ's death on the cross benefits us greatly. We would have no hope of salvation without it. It is tremendous blessing, but the purposes of God in that cross are bigger than even our salvation and eternal life. It's God's glory through that. In the cross, again, we see the mercy and the justice of God mixing. Why does Jesus have to die on the cross? He dies on the cross to satisfy the justice of God, taking that wrath on himself and extending mercy to all who believe in him. In a beautiful way, we again see the wrath and the mercy of God coming together in this great redemptive act. In Ephesians uh, chapter 1, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, we are given this sweeping picture of God's redemptive purposes that are simply breathtaking. 
Now, I would love to, st- to do the whole chapter, but for the sake of, 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 of time and space, I'll limit it um, to verses 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So we're given this fascinating picture of we have life, we have redemption, forgiveness, life through him. But it's not about us. God is uniting all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Christ is the focal point. Everything revolves around the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a beautiful, beautiful picture. You want to be a part of something that matters? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you're part of that redemption story that God is writing. Just as the redemption of Israel all happened according to plan, so the plan of salvation through the Lord Jesus all comes about through God's mighty plan. Faith in God's good plans is wise because he is powerful and wise and connecting With that, getting on Team Jesus is a good idea. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you, Lord, that you call ordinary people like us to be a part of your grand story of redemption. Oh, Lord, would you work faith in our hearts. Lord, help us to do all that you command us to do. May we be found faithful in the small things and in the big things. Lord, let us not be discontent, but let us ever find our purpose in glorifying you, our Lord and our maker. In Jesus' name, amen.